I'm Robert Hunt, and this is Interfaith Encounters. We are here in the Digitally Mediated Ministries Lab at Perkins School of Theology and Southern Methodist University. I am having conversation with Dr. Bruce Tallman, the author of God's Ecstatic Love. And we're going to be talking about spiritual journeys, counseling, and a little bit about AI as well. Dr. Tallman, welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Robert. This is wonderful. I wonder if we could begin by having you share just a little bit about your own spiritual journey and how you came to write this book. Right. Yeah, I'll give you the condensed version. I grew up in the United Church of Canada, which is a very liberal church. I left after I was confirmed at the age of 13, and I was kind of in a spiritual no-man's land. And I actually had a one-to-one interview with Billy Graham. My dad arranged that he was coming to Winnipeg to do a crusade. And at the end of my one-to-one meeting with him, he looked me in the eye and he said, Bruce, we're expecting great things from you. Mm. That scared the living daylights out of me. So I told a Jonah, I tried to run away from God. I tried to run the other way and continued in kind of a spiritual no man's land. Some friends of mine had a grant to do a film of all the Aztec, Inca, and Mayan ruins Mm -hmm. in Mexico, Central America, and Latin America. And they needed somebody to do the still photography for their film. So we spent 11 months visiting these basically religious ruins and You know, I came back and realized, okay, religion was kind of the center of these civilizations. And this was like late 60s, early 70s. A lot of my friends were into drugs, and I thought, there must be some way to get naturally high. And so I became a follower of Maharishi. You know, it was the Beatles, and they were following Maharishi. I got into transcendental meditation. And then I got into graduate school in psychology, and I was working full-time, and I I was studying full-time, and I couldn't seem to get into meditation anymore. So, again, I was kind of in a spiritual no-man's land until I met my wife, Grace, who was from a fundamentalist Mennonite background. And she introduced me to the Bible. I opened it up, but Proverbs started reading it, and I was kind of blown away by the wisdom in the Bible. And so... We started going to church together. We bounced around from one Protestant denomination to another for years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I felt like, well, I want to be part of mainstream Christianity if I'm going to call myself a Christian. And so down the street from where we lived in Winnipeg was a Catholic church. And so I thought I'd just try out the Catholic church. And they had a, I don't know if you know what the RCIA is. It's the right of Christian initiation of adults. and It's a revival of the original initiation rites of the early church. And at Easter, you can join the church. So I joined the church. My wife was kind of shocked, but she joined four years later. And then she left when Ratzinger became Pope. And my kids all stopped going to church when Ratzinger became Pope. And I still go, but I had a master's degree in religious studies by then. And I got a job working for the Roman Catholic Diocese of London in adult religious education. I did that for 14 years. And then I started feeling a calling to be a spiritual director. And so I started developing a spiritual direction practice on the side and studying spiritual direction. I eventually 
graduated with a doctor of ministry degree in spiritual direction from the Graduate Theological Foundation at Notre Dame University. And so I've been doing that since 2003, the past 20 years, I've been working as a spiritual director. I mainly work with clergy, some lay people. I also do some marriage preparation, and I've written a lot of articles, actually hundreds of articles in <laughs> four books. And so, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And I love what I'm doing. I love being a spiritual director and a marriage preparation expert and writing. So, yeah. So that's a bit of background. And I have directees, people who are taking spiritual direction all over North America. I have one in England. And yeah, I mean, Zoom has really opened up the field, you know. So I used to do everything in person. Now it's all on Zoom. So you're not only doing spiritual direction primarily with clergy, but you are mentoring upcoming spiritual directors. Yeah, yeah, I do a workshop for the Hayden Institute. I'm an adjunct faculty of the Hayden Institute, and they train spiritual directors. So I wrote a book called Finding Seekers, How to Develop a Spiritual Direction Practice from Beginning to Full-Time Employment. It's become a bestseller in the field of spiritual direction. Well, this might be a good place to help our listeners. The term spiritual director is used quite a bit here at our theological school, and we actually operate a kind of a school for potential spiritual directors as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people, especially in the Protestant world, this is not a word that they know or understand. Right. What yeah. if you could say briefly what a spiritual director does? Okay. Yeah. Spiritual direction used to be mainly a Catholic thing, and it was mainly for clergy and religious. And in the past 50 years, it's become much more democratized. And there's different levels of training all the way from just a certificate to a master's degree to a doctorate. It's an opportunity to explore your spiritual journey with a trained person. And usually we meet once a month. And, you know, the difference between spiritual direction and psychological counseling is that, I mean, they're both client-centered and they're both non-directive. So the term spiritual direction, you know, has always been a bit of a word that people in the field have wrestled with because you're not directing people. You're listening and trying to ask them the right questions. And the idea is that the Holy Spirit is really the true spiritual director. I mean, you're just a trained person who can hopefully facilitate spiritual growth by asking the right questions and maybe assigning, you know, reading and teaching people new ways of praying and meditating. So, yeah, so it's just an opportunity to explore your spiritual journey in a totally non-judgmental environment with a trained person. And we talk about pretty much anything that comes up. I mean, if a person is depressed, I would just ask them, well, where do you find God in your depression, you know, or have you prayed about it? You know, and I may give them some exercises, deep breathing and so on, and suggest some new ways of praying. And, you know, so we might explore for a while, you know, where the depression came from and how they're managing it. And, you know, where do you find God in it? Are you feeling supported by God? Have you prayed about it? You know, are you getting answers to your prayer? Is this the dark night of the soul rather than depression? No. And so on, you know, those kind of questions. And it takes a lot of discernment on the part of the spiritual director. Well, I was going to get to that because I hear I hear a couple of things. I hear you yeah. talking about it's non-directive in a sense. You're helping people 
speak about themselves and their own spiritual journey. And it sounds like you have, in a sense, a toolkit of things you can offer them as ways in which they can further their spiritual path. But you use the word discernment, and I assume this comes with experience, not just training. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, spiritual direction is a calling, I believe. It's a calling from God or the Holy Spirit. And you could have all the training in the world and not have the calling and be a horrible spiritual director. Or you could have no training but have the calling and probably be reasonably good at it. Yeah. The best thing would be to have both the training and also the calling and also the experience. Yeah, that's the other thing is that you learn a lot about how to do this sort of as you proceed, of course. I like to use the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs and things like that. Those are some other tools that I'll use for discernment as to, you know, I try to fit what might work for a person spiritually with their personality type, their Myers-Briggs personality type or their Enneagram type. You probably know about the Enneagram, but... Sure, and Myers-Briggs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the Enneagram is very helpful because it identifies a person's main spiritual gift and also their main spiritual weakness. And then you can work on that, you know, is the weakness greed or lust or, you know, anger. But again, it takes a lot of discernment. I mean, there's holy anger and there's unholy anger. (laughs) Yeah. You know, anger about injustices in the world. That would be holy anger, and then there's unholy anger where you're just nurturing it, you know, and really starts interfering with your interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Well, I think in C.S. Lewis's great book, The Great Divorce, he talks about this kind of idea of unholy and holy anger. Mm-hmm. So I'm now curious a little bit about a process. So you were quite experienced, and you mentor people. Yeah. Is experience like you have had something you can pass on? Or is it something that a person really has to begin having those interactions with others in order to develop some sort of sense or intuition of what's going on under the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Well, as part of the training in any spiritual director's training program, there's usually triads where, you know, you have one person be the spiritual director, another person be the directee, and another person be the observer. So you get some experience that way before you even, you know, launch out into the field. So usually you get a year of that kind of training. But yeah, it can be passed on by mentoring. You know, so as part of the training, you might study, you know, sessions with experienced spiritual directors and just, you know, pick up from them how to go about this. But it's mainly active listening and you know, just asking the right questions. And and you're also listening to the Holy Spirit at the same time. You know, like I said, it's really the Holy Spirit who's the true director. I mean, if I think I'm the spiritual director, it usually doesn't go well. <laughs> As a spiritual director, then, I assume you have your own personal spiritual practices that help you keep attuned to that spirit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I do a lot of centering prayer and journaling and, you know, just reading spiritual books. I read the Bible every day and, you know, theologians and, yeah, some body prayers that involve, you know, the body and things like this, you know. And so I see you're hugging yourself and raising your arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. People can't see me, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right, right, right. Believe it or not, I usually spend about three hours each morning, you know, 
doing my spiritual practice. And at the end of the day, I have a gratitude journal. So I just try to write down things I'm grateful for. And, you know, the rest of the day, I'm kind of just spontaneously praying in my head as things go on. So so if I want to take a slight turn because part of your own spiritual journey led you into the Catholic Church, where you continue at least to be active, yeah. participant in worship. And I have to say, I was serving in Vienna, Austria, about the time that Cardinal Ratzinger became the Pope. Okay. And Austria is a dominantly Catholic country. I was pastoring a yeah. Protestant church. Okay. But yeah. uh, a lot of my Catholic friends had, if they didn't already have a problem, they had some problems mm. and began a sort of a different search. But mm -hmm. as a person who is active in this, what's the relationship between the personal spiritual journey and then the corporate worship and participation in the sacraments that are part of the active participation in the church? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I always encourage people to have many different ways of praying. You know, you as an individual are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and so you should have your own individual prayer life. You're probably also part of the domestic church, which is the family. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, you have a supportive spouse and, you know, have been able to give your children some religious education. And then, yeah, the corporate worship is important. I think there is a role for the institutional church, you know, any institutional church, you know, so that's the corporate body of Christ. And so, I don't think you can really call yourself a Christian without being involved in some kind of group because it's just too hard to do it on your own, you know. That's why people come to spiritual direction actually is just for support often because, you know, our, our culture is becoming more and more secularized and church attendance is going down and so on. And so, I mean, you could be in a book group that's reading a spiritual book or a prayer group. You need some kind of group support. And I think that's where things really happen more than just showing up at church for an hour and going home again. I mean, in a small group, then you can be held accountable. You know, people know where you're coming from, what you need prayer for. And so yeah, I always encourage people to be involved in some kind of group and, you know, try different prayer practices themselves in their own spiritual journey and also attend church of some kind. No. What I'm hearing is, in this thing of spiritual direction, there is the spiritual director's own personal practice. There's the communal practice that would involve both the spiritual director and the person whom they are directing. So, yep. yeah. And then there's that other individual's practices and sharing, and then the process of spiritual direction has a back and forth with that that involves... Yeah training and knowledge, but also discernment and a sense of what's going on. Have you seen with COVID, we, everything moved to Zoom, which yes. gave us huge possibilities, like the fact that you and I don't have to be in the same city to do the interview, yeah. and huge possibilities for spiritual direction. Mm -hmm. What do you miss, or do you miss anything when you're doing this over Zoom? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Sometimes the person's computer is kind of off to the side and they're looking over here rather than making direct eye contact. I think it's better than I also do some spiritual direction by phone, which can be really good. I mean, it's pure listening. Then. Yeah. But yeah, you miss, you know, you don't see the person's whole body usually. Right. You miss, you know, maybe nonverbal behavior and stuff like that. 
But in general, it's really pretty good. I mean, as long as there's a good connection between, you know, internet connection, Zoom connection between the two of you, it's pretty good. But yeah, I mean, ideally, you would meet face to face. And the other difference with, you know, psychological counseling, just getting back to that briefly, is that in spiritual direction, you can talk about God and your spiritual life right from the get go. I mean, in psychological counseling, it might be sort of brought in after 10 sessions through the back door, sort of. You know, but it's usually almost taboo in some ways to you wouldn't start off a psychological counseling session talking about God, you know. Yeah, I have to say, I've just finished grading the last of my papers, and I teach a course at a doctoral level, essentially a course in a secular doctoral program. Mm-hmm. And so we study cultures, but we study cultures often through the lens of religious writing, which is sometimes all we have. Mm-hmm. And one of my students in her final paper basically said, well, I know that we said we're going to study the culture through the lens of the religious writing, but for me, religion is the way I start understanding what it means to be human. Mm, yeah. So she said, up front for my final paper about what it means to be human, that's where I have to start. I don't start with culture. I start with God. Yeah. And in spite of what humanists may say, I mean, I really believe that to be fully human, you know, I mean, the purpose of life, I think, is to become, you know, this is an Eastern Orthodox term, but to become divinized, it's become full right. of God. I mean, not that we are God, but that we open up more and more to the Holy Spirit, and surrender more and more to the Holy Spirit. And there's lots of Bible verses that say, that, you know, yeah. I mean, all that you have done, God has done for you, basically. So, yeah. Yeah. So, Let's take a turn here, because sure. I'm interested very much in how spiritual direction is influenced by, or maybe won't be influenced by, the advent of the chat GPT and mm-hmm. other artificial mm-hmm. intelligence programs. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I have a doctoral student who himself does a podcast of meditation, guided meditation, who's exploring this right now. And so... Given some of the things that you have now shared with us about spiritual direction, yeah. given the fact that we now have this chat GPT, which although the backside of it is frankly random probabilities of getting the next character correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. which seems to be such a good advisor, yeah. do you see artificial intelligence as having an impact on the practice of spiritual direction as you know it, or is it just, I don't want to prompt you, what do you think? Yeah, well, a couple of things. It's interesting because, you know, I've been studying artificial intelligence in preparation for the Zoom call. Before I started, I was totally against it. I just thought that, you know, there's no way a machine can mimic a human being. I mean, machines don't have empathy. They don't have experience. They don't have intuition, imagination and insight, you know, but as I read about it, I think there is a role for it, but it only really works if you have trained spiritual directors who are kind of writing, you know, the questions for the chat GPT and writing the responses, you know, so it really depends upon this calling, I think, of genuine spiritual directors who might write sort of the programs for the chat GPT. But I think it has some advantages. It has advantages in regular counseling as well, because, I mean, for one thing, you know, 
any kind of counseling can be expensive for people. In spiritual direction, usually we just meet once a month. The other thing I was going to say in comparison to psychological counseling is that, you know, with therapy, there's normally sort of a beginning and an end, you know, and you've been healed and you move on. But with spiritual direction, a person can keep coming as long as they want, as long as they feel like they're getting something out of it. I mean, I have directees who have been with me for 15 years, you know, and so as long as they feel like they're getting something out of it, they keep coming. There's no theoretical limit to spiritual growth, right? No, that's right. Exactly. And, you know, the advantage of AI would be, I mean, some advantages is that it could be a lot cheaper than it could be free. And a person could, you know, access their chat GPT spiritual director, you know, 24 seven, they could go back to it 10 times a day, whereas you can't do that with a regular spiritual director. Sure. And also it overcomes accessibility issues if it's done on Zoom. And, you know, my wife works for the Canadian Mental Health Association, and she does a lot of tele-mental health counseling. Yeah. She's a crisis mental health counselor. And mm -hmm. the idea is to keep people out of the regular emergency rooms by, you know, people coming to her who have psychological problems, not physical mm -hmm. problems. So that kind of telehealth Elemental health is good. And, and I can see, you know, chat GPT doing that. You know, in the 1960s, there was a program called ELISA. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it was set up by somebody to kind of mock counseling. And yes. it would just kind of reflect back to a person whenever they said, so yeah. how are you feeling today? I'm feeling depressed. So the AI would just say, oh, so you're feeling depressed, you know, and yeah. it would just repeat what the person said eventually. So, I mean, now, you know, everything is a lot more sophisticated, of course, but it's an unregulated field. I mean, I think what's happening is that there's some companies that are starting up that are offering, you know, AI counseling, spiritual direction even. And I mean, the owners of those companies are probably going to make a fortune, but it may put a lot of spiritual directors out of work. Mm -hmm. One company said that it had hundred psychological counselors and they, they did a million and a half sessions with people, you know, and so it makes counseling more accessible, more affordable. And also AI could analyze the sessions and, you know, report to supervisors as to what kind of counseling or spiritual direction worked, you know, so it could be helpful for training. There are problems of, okay, what happens with the data that is collected by the right. AI, you know, I mean, it's an unregulated field and there's no legal liability so far yeah. and it really needs to be regulated. I mean, the ideal thing I think would be for the government of Canada and the government of the U S to just fund free counseling and free spiritual direction. I mean, that would be the ideal so that, you know, you interact with an actual human being and a person could be turned on to human counseling or human spiritual direction or turned off by it, by their interaction with AI. I mean, yeah. if they had a good AI session, that might make them think, well, I don't need human counseling. Yeah. Or it might make them think, well, that was great, you know, but it didn't really meet all my needs. So I, I want to go to a human counselor now. Sure. When I was in theological school, we were largely trained to do sort of Rogerian counseling. So it's mm -hmm. very reflective, you know, yeah. 
which is the kind of thing, by the way, that ChatGPT could do extremely well. At the same time, it was understood that this was not a long-term solution for most people. It was a way to get people thinking. And sometimes people would sort out their own problems in a couple of hours or three hours. But if yeah. they didn't, it was going to take more. And that mm -hmm. was the time for the person who only had that limited training to say, you need to talk to someone who can bring a lot more tools to the table yeah, than I can, and maybe yeah. a lot more time. It seems to me that this is where, from your description of spiritual direction, that something like ChatGPT would begin to fall short. If it's yeah. Just, yeah. I need to answer three questions that you've got, okay, yeah. ChatGPT can answer them. Right. If it's, I can help you develop a disciplined spiritual life that is inclusive of a lot of things and depends on years of insight into people like you, then I think it's likely to fall short. The, yeah, in long conversations, apparently it doesn't work. It doesn't have a great memory, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's AI that, you know, I was just thinking the other day, I actually use AI. I use something called Insight Timer, this app. I've always had trouble with sleeping, and so it has a lot of sleep programs that just help you unwind and do progressive relaxation. And, you know, but I'm listening to some recording by somebody, you know, I'm not listening to the actual human being live. I mean, it's a recording. So, you know, that's an example of, I think, useful AI. Yeah. I wouldn't go to Insight Timer for in-depth exploration, Jungian depth analysis of, you know. Well, part of what occurs to me on this is, and the capabilities of these things are being developed, but ChatGPT is trained by scouring vast amounts of existing data. That's right. It can be everything from conversations in a book, in a novel, yeah. to conversations on the internet, generally without any discernment. In other words, it doesn't know if a conversation between two 14-year-olds that was somehow caught up on the internet is better than a conversation in a profound novel by Dostoevsky. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that if we thought of a spiritual director as kind of an intelligence, that the spiritual director is also training herself or himself in relationship to specific individuals who are seen on a regular basis and who bring their own selves into that. Right. And one wonders whether ChatGPT can ever have that kind of personal and individual relationship yeah. where that specific set of relations is the important thing. Yeah. The foundation of any type of counseling, psychological or spiritual direction counseling or social work counseling, it is the relationship between the director and the directee or the counselor and the client. So, yeah, I mean, I think AI could, you know, if it had access to a person's posts on the internet, it could maybe flag people who are maybe suicidal. Right. I mean, the Veterans Administration did that in the States, and they found that, you know, they could monitor all these veterans and they flag something like 6,000 a month who were potentially suicidal, wow. and, and they received counseling. I mean, more soldiers die from suicide than from war, apparently. Yeah. And so the rate of suicides went down by 8%, you know, thanks to the AI. I think it does have a role, but I think it's a pretty limited role. And yeah, yeah it's about the long-term development of relationship and learning over time what works with a person, what doesn't. But again, it wouldn't work at all, I don't think, in spiritual direction unless there were trained 
spiritual directors who are writing the questions and the responses, you know, right. people who had been called to spiritual direction. Yeah. So. This is going to be an interesting thing to develop. The student that I'm working with is specifically working on the question of how you would train a chatbot to engage in spiritual direction or spiritual counseling. Yeah. And it turns out that's a great deal more complicated question than mm. I think he thought it was. And a good deal of yeah. his dissertation is going to be on the difficulty of the question and then the difficulty of communicating what you're doing to people who are programmers, you know, because the training of chat GPT up to this point and all of them up to this point has simply been to pour in information. Yeah. Right. They get vastly more information and then they use this in order to create probable good responses to particular words and letters. Yeah. And what exactly would be the information you would pour in to create a spiritual director is much in question. Yeah. And, you know, in spiritual direction, you know, you're not supposed to lay your morality and your theology on the directee. And it takes years and years to really get sort of theologically astute, you know? Mm -hmm. And if, you know, the people who were doing the programming were coming in from kind of a fundamentalist religious background and programming that into the AI, I mean, it could do a lot of damage, particularly since it's so accessible. It could multiply the damage, you know? Right. Fold, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in the same way that we've seen some of the results of conversations with both ChatGPT and the Microsoft yeah. chatbot, yeah. where because it can't discern good from bad, mm -hmm. it can take a very dark turn yeah. quickly because that's what it's hearing on the internet, right? Yeah. You know, the old saying in computer science is garbage in, garbage out. Well, if you're being trained on garbage, then that's what you're There you could got. be all kinds of biases built into it, you know? Right. Yeah. For example, one study that I read about was that, you know, it was about health and the idea was, okay, how much are people spending on health? Well, wealthy people may be spending a lot more than, say, black people on health mm. because in general, you know, white people are more wealthy. But that doesn't mean that the black population, you know, might not have way more health problems. Right. In the white population. So if the AI just picked out, okay, how much are all these people spending on health? That might give a total bias yeah. to the data. Yeah, and there appear to be many of these biases yeah. Yeah. built in. The fact that historically most doctors have been men is something that you and I both know is one no longer true today and isn't generalizable to about the quality of a doctor, but an AI just sees it's looking at probabilities. The probabilities are that doctors are a male rather than a female. Yeah, yeah. Well, to sort of bring our conversation to a close, I want to first appreciate you and your writing okay. and the way in which you've helpfully elucidated what spiritual direction is and some of the potentially useful ways of a chatbot or an AI in counseling in beginning phases maybe spotting people who have certain proclivities, for example, to suicide or something like this, but also the limitations that come because it's not a human being interacting with another human being. And I would just mention, which we didn't really get to, AIs right now are all one-on-one, -on -one, and that's not the same as bringing a person into a larger community of worship 
and reflection. Yeah. You know, there's group spiritual direction that can be done. And if a person was waiting to see a spiritual director or waiting to see a therapist, I mean, you know, in the meantime, inexpensive group counseling or spiritual direction could be quite helpful. Yeah. There are other ways than just a chat bot. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. This has been most helpful, Dr. Tallman. I'm going to mention again your book, God's Ecstatic Love. And I want to thank you very much for being part of Interfaith Encounters. Okay. Well, thank you for having me, Robert. It's been wonderful. I'm Robert Hunt, and this has been Interfaith Encounters.